Hello, and welcome to Dig It. I'm Peter Brown, and hosting the show with me today is Chris Day. Hi, Chris. Hi, Peter. We are delighted to welcome Katrina Fenton, who is the head of the Heritage Seed Library at Garden Organics. Hello, Katrina, and welcome to Dig It. And where and how do we find you today? Oh, hello, and thank you for having me. Um, Well, I'm currently at our Wrighton HQ, that's just outside Coventry. It's the home of the Heritage Seed Library, and it's where we do all of our growing and processing and storing of heritage seeds. So I'm, I'm sat here with a cup of tea uh, at what is quite exciting and busy time of year for us when we are sending lots of seeds out to our members. So I'm, I'm really pleased to be able to stop and have a chat with you. Well, that's great. So um, now I'm sure many of our listeners, listeners will know the great work, which is obviously carried out by Garden Organics. Um, however, it would be really good to sort of start the conversation to sort of set the scene as far as the Seed Heritage Library, which maybe some of our listeners don't know about and which we obviously would like to enthuse them with, uh, with your knowledge today. Of course. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, we've, we've been around for a little while now. We've been around since the, the 1970s. And Lawrence Hills, who, who's the founder of Garden Organic, the charity that we're part of, one of our key projects. Uh, so Lawrence Hills, he was an absolute pioneer part, uh, founding Garden, Garden Organic. And he originally set up the Henry Doubleday Research Association in Bocking, near Braintree in Essex, back in 1954. And we're now known as, as Garden Organic. Um, by the time he retired in 1986, HDRA was the largest a body of organic gardeners in the world. Uh, and we've moved to Wrighton, which is where I am now, near Coventry. Lawrence Hills, he was a prolific author, and many of his publications, including Fertility Without Fertilisers, Down-to-Earth Gardening and Organic Gardening. Um, but he was also best known for his Grow Your Own Fruit and Vegetables book, published back in 1971. It rapidly became a really important uh, reference book, a go-to place for information about gardeners and self-sufficiency uh, and commercial organic gardening. So in terms of the Heritage Seed Library, well, we were established back in the 1970s. And really, this goes all the way back to what was happening to seed legislation at the time. And that was a real catalyst for Lawrence Hill to start up the seed library. So we'd recently joined the the European economic community. And uh, with that came an overhaul of seed regulations uh, around marketing and trading seeds. So up to that point, you know, seed, seed... was available to farmers and gardeners across Europe. But in the 1970s, this legislation was brought in, making it illegal to commercially market seeds for varieties that weren't included on a national and a wider European list, on the UK national list or the European Common Catalogue. And with that new regulation came a whole load of strings of tests that seed had to be demonstrated to be uniform and stable uh, and unique. And... With that came some additional costs, and, and Lawrence at the time realised that this new sort of regulation would have a, a, a real potential damaging impact on the availability of seed, and was quite right. Many varieties simply fell out of favour, not just because the varieties wouldn't pass these stringent tests, but also because growers and seed maintainers simply weren't prepared to take on the cost of doing that. So he set up the Heritage Seed Library. Initially, he started a national gene bank at uh, Horticultural Research International in in Warwickshire, which is now part of Warwick University. And the creation of the seed library sort of followed out of that. It was originally part of the Genetic Resources Unit, a tiny, tiny collection of varieties that were being grown for 
um, largely for a display to raise public awareness, but has now formed into what we know now as the, the, the Heritage Seed Library, a national collection of heritage vegetable varieties, which we maintain as seed. Excellent. So can, can I just ask a, a sort of a, a, a bit of a, um, a question on, on the Millennium Seed Bank? Because um, obviously that's that's over at Wakehurst, isn't it? Do, do you working in collaboration at all with, with the, the Millennium Seed Bank over at uh, it's Wakehurst Place, isn't it? That's right. So um, the Millennium Seed Bank is looking after kind of our, our uh, wild relatives, our, our natural uh, species within the UK. It has pretty much 100% of the UK's uh, species of, of wildflowers and, and other wild um, plants. We deal with cultivated biodiversity, okay. so we look after uh, vegetables rather than, than that. But we do have a, a, a relationship with them. We, we're both members of the UK Plant Genetic Resources Group. So all, both of our important genetic resources and the way that we look after them form this national inventory of, of UK plant genetic resources. Um, but we both collect very different things in terms of our, our collections and, and the way we run run our seed. Yeah, it's great. It's, 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 yeah, I was going to say grand work, but by both parties then. So, so perhaps can you, Katrina, can you sort of sort of how does the seed library work in in today? How you know the day to day side of the, the the sort of processes? Yeah, sure. So, so as an organisation, we're uh, we're a, a registered charity. We're a conservation organisation, membership organisation. So. All the varieties that we look after, and we've got about 800 vegetable varieties in the collection, these all continue to be ones that have not been commercially listed, so didn't make it onto the UK national list or the, the European Common Catalogue as it was. And we, we look after these varieties ourselves. We have a growing space on site here at Wrighton, uh, and we also have a fantastic network of growers, volunteer growers, our seed guardians who grow for us. Um, we continue to be under the same sort of regulation, so uh, we do not sell the seeds, we can't sell the seeds, and instead our, our members, we have about 7,000 of them, support us to do the work we do, um, and in return they are able to access the seed once a year through our annual seed list, in which we make about 150 of our 800 varieties available, and they can choose their six packets of seeds each year. So they support us financially and also as seed guardians, some of them, and in return, we're able to conserve this collection and research and look for new varieties that we can take under our, our, our collection um, as, a, as a growing and living collection of vegetables. Excellent. And with regards to the sort of people who can access the seeds and then get their six varieties, do they then return some of the seeds that they've grown in, in from the fruits back to you? or? Well, they don't need to do that if they want to their six packets they can but about 100 and, and grow and enjoy them of course and eat them because that's what we want, we want them to be a living a living collection and people to actually use these varieties right. but out of those 7,000 members we have about 170 who are volunteers who've taken on the additional responsibility of growing for seed and returning seed for us so we have a separate list of um, heritage varieties usually about 30 to 50 varieties each year that we need a little bit of extra help with and we send them out some seeds and they grow that seed and hopefully by the end of the year send us an awful lot back. So, so that seed that they support us the seed guardians with helps to replenish our seed library uh, and also when we have sufficient seed we can then share it with our members more widely. 
Okay, because no, just thinking sort of how, how, how long does the average seed last? Well, it depends on the vegetable type, and, and every seed has got its own shelf life. Right. So you can imagine here, the, the planning is quite, a, is quite, quite a, a big process in terms of what we decide what to grow and what we decide to share with our members. So if you take something like a carrot or, or parsnip, perhaps um, you know the shelf life is only going to be one or two years before the germination rate starts to drop off. But if you're a cabbage or some other kind of brassica, or maybe even a cucumber seed, that shelf life is a lot longer, maybe 10 years, um, if they're stored in the right conditions, which is nice and dry and nice and cool. So we have a continuous cycle of growing out, but also a good, viable seed that we can then share with our members as well. Okay. And how do you keep the varieties pure, as it were? That's a really, that's a really good question. And, and some things are easier than others. You know, we, we'd certainly say if you haven't saved seed before, always give it a go, but maybe start with the easy stuff. So something like a pea or a tomato or French bean. Generally, they're quite happy self-pollinators, generally low risk of cross-pollinating. And, you, you know, uh, quite, you can grow quite a small population of, of plants and, and have a good genetic, you know, good healthy gene pool for that seed. But something like, uh, something trickier, I mean, brassicas are probably the hardest, certainly biennial brassicas are the hardest to do that. So we have to do uh, an awful lot of intervention in order to keep the seed true to type. So even something like a broad bean, which we're all familiar with in terms of seed production, um, we do need quite a big isolation distance from another broad bean. And of course, that's not really practical for us. We need at least half a mile from another variety or a field bean. So what we do, we, we grow them in polytunnels, okay. and they're all sealed up. They've got nice mesh sides to keep the insects out. Yep. Uh, but of course, if you're keeping the insects out, then then you also need to somehow uh, enable them Pollinate to them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <to pollinate. laughs> so a huge amount of work that my my lovely team and uh, our fantastic volunteers do on site is a lot of hand pollinating. So something like a runner bean or a broad bean, we'll actually bring paintbrushes in and we use paintbrushes to transfer pollen across flowers, across plants in order to pollinate them. Yeah. Um, but we also do introduce pollinators as well. So uh, I get slightly funny looks, but never any questions, which I'm always, always rather amused at when I pop down to the local angler shop and we buy white uh, maggots. Right. <laughs> bring them back. It's a favourite time of year, as you can imagine. We're really yeah. popular with the rest of the staff on site when we bring back quite a few pints of maggots. Pop, pop them in a crate with some sawdust and keep them covered and they will happily pupate and then hatch into blowflies, which we can then release into a polytunnel. So, oh, wow. Um, they're blowflies really, really do the pollination, do they? They do. They're, they're, not, you know, they're not quite as efficient as bees, but you can imagine that's slightly more technical to manage bees in, in tunnels. Yeah. The flies, you know, they're able to, to do that job for us, particularly with... with um, vegetable types that we can't really easily hand pollinate. So I'm talking here things like brassicas where you've got lots of tiny self-incompatible flowers where you do really need to move that pollen around or allium, something like that. Uh, and they do the job for you, but you, you definitely want to have your mouth shut when you're wandering around. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, you paint a good picture. On the, on the seeds then, um, yeah, it might be worth explaining obviously to, to gardeners that 
the, the, the two main types you come across. Uh, we, you mentioned Katrina about open pollinated, uh, but what about yeah. what about F one hybrids? What, what's the what's the difference there on on the, the production of the seed? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, actually. And, and it's worth mentioning that all of the varieties that we look after in our collection are all open pollinated, which is why mm-hmm. we're using these methods to bring that pollen, move it around, and make sure that we produce um, good, good viable seed as a result. F1 hybrids, on the other hand, in a nutshell, I suppose, they're produced by a very, um, very controlled process of pollination across different highly selected varieties to produce kind of one-off, a single generation of, of hybrid seed. Uh, and that is to produce a plant that can have specific features, so it can, you know, have particular vigour in growth. But, uh, and certainly in terms of seed saving, the seed saved from an F1 hybrid is, is not going to produce a plant necessarily with the same characteristics of the parent. So the whole breeding process has to be done annually, and if you're one who grows using F1 hybrids, it means you have to go back and buy new seed each time you want to, to grow a new generation. In contrast, the open pollinated seed, which is the seed that we're dealing with, we can maintain that true to type with a bit of care with our helpful blowflies and hand pollinating from you know from one generation to the next. And those parent plants are going to contain uh, that, that their, their genetics is going to be passed down to the next generation of seed. So it means you can save your own seed. If you've got something you particularly like, an open pollinated variety, you're good for one generation to the next if you carefully save that seed. Yeah, I mean, I think for, for most gardeners, isn't it, that the open pollinated varieties, especially your veg, tend to mature at different times. So especially if you've got an allotment um, and you want a, a yeah. good crop of, of cabbage, they're not going to all uh, you know ripen or develop or be, be harvestable at the same time, which obviously with an F1 hybrid, that's what they're designed to, to be ready on a specific week from being sown on a, a particular time. So you've got a bit more flexibility, which I suppose for most home gardeners, that's still quite an important factor for choosing varieties? Absolutely. I mean, there are various features that F1 hybrids are looking for, and they may be of particular, you know, of particular value uh, as a feature. But, but yes, you're quite right. You know, many of the varieties we've got in our collection, you've got succession harvesting involved, which is not particularly great if you're doing it on a large, um, you know, a large agricultural scale. But for home gardener, it's perfect. You've got something that's got a nice long harvesting season. Uh, and, and from an open pollinated position alone it's it's always worth noting that these varieties are always going to be inherently genetically variable so each plant is always going to be slightly different for the next one and that, that variability allows for adaptation and for, for plants that work well in a particular area to, to keep being selected and, and save, seed saved for them for that for that particular that benefit for that grower in that area Indeed. So, Katrina, you mentioned you've got 800 varieties of vegetables on the heritage list at the moment. Does that number change, or how does it evolve? Yeah, the heritage seed library collection itself, although we're at, at about 800, it's expanding and contracting all the time. And certainly part of our conservation work, a really important part of what we do, is to try and find those next little gems that we can bring into the collection. And these could be anything from an heirloom, which is very often um, a variety that's been grown by a particular family. Perhaps the original name of it has been lost and you know, Uncle Fred or, or Auntie Jean um, started saving their own seeds when they weren't able to buy them again and they've taken on the name of that variety. So we've got lots of those in the collection. Um, and some of them are ex-commercial varieties that have dropped off the, 
a commercial listing. Usually they've got a really great history, a good provenance behind them, um, and, and we're able to then get our hands on those seeds and, and grow them out uh, and bring them into the collection. So this year we, we trialled five varieties. They included an ex-commercial variety and they included several heirloom varieties. So these are varieties that um, have been grown in a particular area. We have one from the Ronda in Wales, for example, had a prize-winning runner bean that we were really pleased to bring into the collection. And at the other end of the scale, actually some varieties that we've been custodians on for some years, they are get taken on commercially again, and that's a really good success story. So we've managed to look after them. Actually, they become rated really well as a, a variety that people will be interested in buying, and a commercial seed company will take them on, and our kind of conservation work is done. We can take them out of the collection, um, and we can move our attention on to, to our queue. We've got about... I think we've got about 30, 35 um, varieties sitting in our cold store still to be assessed. So we're always, we've always got a continuous cycle of, of heritage varieties being taken in and taken out of the collection, which is how it should be. You know, we definitely want to be conserving things that are out there, but, but we also want to make sure that they are able to be made more widely available when they can be. Okay. Katrina, can I just ask also, looking at the at the seed um, library, what do you think the major benefits of growing the, the seed heritage uh, seeds are for the home gardener? So thinking, you know, what, what sort of benefits do you think uh, the home gardener is going to bene- benefit from these uh, these varieties, which obviously they, they may never have come across before or they may have heard yeah. them anecdotally? Yes, of course. I mean, I always, always it sits in the back of my mind when we're doing this role is that someone somewhere at some point thought, you know what, I really rate this variety and I'm going to save the seed from it. And, and very often that's how that comes across to us. You know, we end up with it on our doorstep to say, look, have a look at this one. It's been grown for decades. It's really good. And, and from an open pollinated position alone, you know, it's really important that we've got this sort of adaptable um, genetic biodiversity, this cultivated biodiversity out there. Um, that people can, can continue to grow and benefit from um, but that variability, that genetic variability and that adaptability, that's also explains why so many of the varieties in our collection have been considered special for someone to save the seed from. And, you know, it could be that it demonstrates an evidence of drought resistance or bolt resistance or a fantastic flavour that they haven't come across before. Or like we said earlier, you know, the fact that you can potentially pick at different times of the year and, and have a long harvest. So it's not just about having something a little bit special or a little bit different that you can't really easily get your hands on but it's also about that important cultivated biodiversity that underpins it all and if you think about it you know if you go to your your shop or your supermarket you know we've got about 190 tomato varieties in the collection it's just not something that you see out there and each of those varieties at some point they have a particular value to that person who who grew and saved the seed and and it's about underpinning that food security and the choices that we have as growers, really, um, all part of the picture of the varieties in our collection. Yeah, and, and sort of following on from that, I'm sure the most important thing for, for home gardeners, certainly when I'm growing vegetables or, or fruits, um, greenhouse fruits, is flavour. And that has to be sort of fundamentally, uh, obviously, the, the, the problem sometimes with F1 hybrids, you know, commercial varieties, which obviously are grown for the supermarkets, the flavour is always yeah. <laughs> well down the list. So hopefully you're, you're going to have commercial mm-hmm. growers coming to the Seed Heritage Library to, to get those wonderful genetics back into, into flavour. Yeah, 
absolutely. You know, a good example this year is we, we um, grew uh, tomato. Uh, it's called Golden Yellow Queen, a 19th century, from the States actually originally. Really lovely tomato, really lovely flavour to it, but really thin skin. You know, and it's definitely not the kind of variety that uh, you're going to find bouncing in the back of the Loreto supermarket uh, or sitting on a shelf there for any length of time. But it's a good example of one that's just of value to home growers. They want something a little bit different, but they also want something that tastes fantastic, but doesn't necessarily meet the market requirements for a, you know, for a very consistent um, tomato on a shelf somewhere. So, you know, that's all part of what we have in the collection. And if it's, it's got the added bonus of perhaps being light resistant or, or even, you know, drought resistant or performing well under particular environmental pressures, then these are all really important resources that benefit our future resilience, particularly in, in the face of challenges like climate change, for example. Yes, I think climate change is going to be a, a major sort of factor, isn't it, over the next few years? Um, I mean, is that something when you're doing your assessments for, for varieties, when you are sort of, when these new heirloom varieties come into your into your hands and you, you grow them perhaps for the first year, um, is there an assessment process on, on the, the factors that the, the seed is going to need, you know, from germination sort of onwards? Yeah, I mean, we, when we do these assessment trials and we talked about the five that we've done this year what's what's important I mean, it's quite a rigorous process and if you think about it for some heirloom variety that you know the fact belongs to a family member this might be the first time that they've been described in such detail so we'll take lots of photographs we do lots of measurements um, we compare them with varieties that we've already got in the collection just to see if there's something a bit special about them um, and, and we'd love to do more more formal research about um, the varieties and their certain resistances and resiliencies and, and sensitivities as well. Um, and we, that's why we value our members' feedback so much. So many of them will come back and say, do you know what, this is the best forming this, that and the other that we've, we've had. It works really well in my conditions. And uh, it got through it's the only one, the last one standing in a really hot summer or something along those lines. Then we gather all of that information about these and we can share that with our, with our members um, who who are really interested to find out what works well for them where they live. So I think there's a huge amount more work that we'd love to be doing, and, and which is why we partner up with organisations like Coventry University. So this year and the last few years, they've been doing comparison trials with heritage varieties and their equivalent um, varieties for certain legumes, comparing all sorts of things around nutrients and attractiveness to pollinators and yield and, and bigger and those kinds of things and we haven't got the full data yet and it's a small project but you know heritage varieties stand up pretty well um, against some of these criteria so again a re really important resource that we want to maintain as a living collection to use. Yeah, indeed, and uh, obviously you're doing grand work in that direction. Um, a question we had got down here was: um, How is there a sort of status of 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 a heritage variety? Is there anything one key thing which which, which would then get it into the into the library? Um, you know, or would it be flavour, or would it be its backstory? Um, anecdotally, uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's a good it's a good question actually, and and it, that's because there isn't really a very strict definition. And there's a lot of overlap in the way that we describe our, our collection. But really, just it, we kind of group them into three types in a nutshell. Firstly, you've got your true historic land race varieties, perhaps something you could look up in a book. 
could be decades, could be hundreds of years old. In fact, the oldest thing that we have in the collection is a, a an old broad bean, a, a kind of field bean called martop. And that would have been quite a staple for medieval diets. And uh, we know that uh, the sort of descriptive records for that particular variety go back to about 1293, 1294, something like that. What we have in our collection is, is much younger than that, mostly um, 18th, 19th and 20th century variety. We also have a large proportion of heirlooms, so I mentioned named after relatives, uncles and aunties uh, and places and people and characters. So ideally at least uh, predate the 1970s and some of them go back into the 1980s. 17th century as well. Um, and we do have a small proportion of um, ex-commercial varieties. And again, that third group ideally predates the 1970s when the, the seed regulations came in. But actually, we're always on the lookout for varieties more modern cultivars that have been commercially maintained but dropped. So, for example, uh, this year, one of the five varieties that we tried that was Houston proper tomato. And it, it did used to be available for sale around the 2000, year 2000, 2003, something along those lines. But it's since been dropped. We're always on the lookout for, for more recent um, varieties that are no longer available. So under those circumstances, we would be looking at a, a more recent uh, variety. But as heritage, more generally, uh, at least predates the 1970s, but as, as old as possible, really, that we can get our hands on with these and if, if somebody had, uh, you know, a, a particular variety, um, they would just basically contact uh, contact you at the seed library? I mean, what would be the process? Do they have to um, do a proper uh, uh, sort of, uh, would there be a sort of form to fill in? Would it be, or would it just a matter of sending some seeds to you and saying, look, this is the, this is the story, um, yeah. take it from there? Yeah, I think, yeah we, have, we do have a process. Um, we do get contacted a lot by people who've gone, uh, I've got this seed, it's great. Do you think this could be something that we bring into the Heritage Seed Library? We get about 20, 30 inquiries like that every year, and it's always really mm. exciting to look at it. Um, we always go through a, a, quite a stringent process before we even get to the grow-out stage, or the, you know, the trial assessment stage, because very often we'll discover that um, they're, actually an ex, they're actually a commercial variety, but they're just not, not, not quite um, recognised that or they're synonymous the commercial variety which we don't really need to conserve so we do ask some some questions about them about where they came from how old people think they are what the backstory is who grew them what are they called what's so special about them uh, and it's once they've passed those initial um, checks that we will then go do you know what this would be great for us to have an opportunity to grow this have a look at this variety and it's when we've done that growing trial that we can then decide a, whether it's what we're expecting to see. Uh, secondly, whether it's cross-pollinated. That sometimes happens, unfortunately. Uh, and also to check for generally good health um, so that we know that we've got good viable seed. And it's from that point that we're able to inform the donor that we're delighted to take this variety onto the collection, hopefully. Um, and it's, that's been the case with all of the ones we've grown this year. We were pleased that we, they were all good. We could include them in the collection. And it's from that point that we can then, uh, we, you know, we've secured that variety. We will keep regenerating the seed. We will share it with our members. We might get our seed guardians to help us look after it. And then it's secured then in our collection, um, which is a really, really important part of what we're trying to do. Mm. 
Very interesting. And with regards to English vegetables, I mean, when you were walking around the allotments, you see lots of vegetables that people are growing, like potatoes from sort of South America and um, strawberries from France, or the garden strawberry that's originated from France. Um, can you give us some examples of some vegetables that are actually native to the United Kingdom and any good recommendations for the varieties of those vegetables to look well, out for? Yeah, and, and I think, well, I think historically, I think it's fair to say that we've probably got quite a lot to thank the Robins for when it comes to introducing <laughs> crops. And of yeah. course, since then, further afield, you know, and, and what we do consider familiar in our veg pack certainly has, you know, the crops have a really long history that reaches across the world. I suppose depending on how far you, back you go, really, to our crop wild relatives, and we've probably moved on a little bit since um, Swedes and kale, which is <clears throat> perhaps more traditionally associated with the UK. Although we do, it's worth saying we do have some really lovely kale varieties and, and um, Swede varieties in our collections, something like Ragged Jack, for example, and, and other varieties that, that are more modern cultivars. Um, but I suppose, so, so I suppose it's worth saying that all of the crops that we grow today, certainly the seed that we produce at the Heritage Seed Library, because it's all grown in the UK, it is all suitable for UK growing conditions. So, uh, you know, a good example of that, perhaps that we have in our collection, which is really popular, for example, is, is Robinson pea. So that's an heirloom variety, originates in Scotland, um, and has been around at least since the 1950s, for example. Um, it's both cold hardy and drought resistant, and really vigorous. You know, it's got two metres plus plant, and produces really lovely pods over a very long season. Okay. Which is great to eat fresh and great for frozen. Excellent. And is that going to get eaten by my mice on the allotment as well? <laughs> uh, well, probably highly mice approved uh, <laughs> as well. Possibly, possibly slug approved as well. Yes, we're, we're all we all face certainly for us here on uh, on the site at Brighton. Uh, we we uh, yeah we 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 often find that uh, our varieties are very popular with all kinds of uh, general pets. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Maybe I'll try those next year then. Let's <laughs> see if I can actually grow some peas. It's been a bane of my life for the last seven, eight years. I, I've tried sowing peas, I've tried sowing peas, and they just always seem to get eaten. But never mind. Yeah. That, that's life, isn't yeah. it? Uh, you have my sympathies. You have my sympathies. <laughs> so on the on the stories then, anecdotally, um, overall the the varieties you've you've sort of curated uh, over the years, uh, Katrina. Is there any any other sort of stories you'd like to share? Anything which might give us a bit of an insight into the to the background of these wonderful varieties? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think, but certainly for our members, I'm really part of what we really enjoy about doing this role here at, at, at uh, the Heritage Seed Library is that we've got a really good fair share of really interesting tales attached to our seeds. Sometimes very tall tales. I'm particularly fond of our of our, uh, our claims of, of some of the varieties we've got in our collection. We've got, for example, we've got quite a few uh, what we call mummies peas, and um, they make certain claims about being found in Egyptian tombs many 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 years ago. <laughs> uh, but we, we love them to bits because you know they're a great example of 1920s varieties and are not for the bit of cheeky kind of. Uh, enterprising spirit of the time associated with that <laughs> yeah, Egypt mythology and Egypt mania that was happening in the 1920s so you know we, we will affectionately include those stories in in our collection and we've got some really 
beautiful French bean seeds with specific markings on them that look like soldiers or angels or mysterious figures that people you know, created and cultivated over time. We've got stories about varieties being salvaged from shipwrecks, all, all of those kinds of, of uh, tall tales and interesting background stories. But, but I, I think very often some of the best stories are those that link the people to the varieties themselves. And I'm, I'm th there's quite a dramatic story around one of the tomato varieties we've got. It's called Marianne's Peace. And it's uh, the variety that dates back to the turn of the century. It's, uh, so Mariana was a, a farmer's daughter to, from Czechoslovakia at the time. She managed to escape Russian captivity during, during World War II by jumping from a truck that was transporting her uh, off, off to, to Siberia somewhere. But despite being shot at, and she managed to escape and got to the safety of Bavaria. And these were the seeds that her father gave her before, before he died. And they produced really lovely very large pink red fruits, um, really large fruits that, that uh, have been kept in the collection. So even you know, really, really dramatic stories to the, to the sublime and slightly ridiculous, they're all in there in the collection. And I think they add a bit of colour to what is already an interesting range of varieties of vegetables to grow. Most definitely, yeah. That, I mean, that does the backstories, however wacky and wild and uh, surreal they might be, does put a perspective on on the fact that it's something people, you know, ultimately grow and they have passion about growing, doesn't it? So that's good. So, as far as our listeners to dig it are concerned, what sort of tips could you perhaps give us, Katrina, about saving seed in our own gardens? Well, first of all, I think everyone should give it a go. It's really great. It's quite addictive. You know, once you start saving your own seed and you realise what fun it is, you might want to can continue to do that. I, I would suggest certainly vegetable seed. That's our thing here. So if you haven't saved seed before, definitely give it a go with, with some really simple varieties to begin with. Tomatoes, I really like saving seeds from those. Because you actually get enjoy the tomatoes as well. So a, a top tip would be if you're growing some tomato plants, um, Keep a, you know, the, the good news is you, you harvest your seed at the same time as it is ripe to eat. So you can take a tomato, cut it in half, scoop out the, the seeds from inside. And the way we process the seed here is a very simple method. It's a fermentation method. So have a jam jar ready. Take your spoon, scoop your seed into the jam jar, cover it with a few centimetres of water, and then allow that seed to ferment slightly, probably somewhere between three or five days might smell a bit funny but don't worry hold it somewhere keep it somewhere the room temperature and what you're trying to do is remove that gelatinous coating from the seed and you have some really nice nice clean seeds that you can dry out nicely on a, on a flat surface ideally not something that can stick to much paper and then you've got some great tomato seed and, and tomato seeds got really nice long shelf life probably at least six or seven years if you keep it in good condition so once you've got that seed, you've got a nice supply of tomato seed for some time. Keep it somewhere dry, not necessarily cool, but ideally cool, but drying, drying um, conditions are most important. And then you'll have a, a lovely seed supply. Or just leave a few pods from your French bean or your, your pea plants um, to, to really dry out. And again, do the same thing, not ferment it, but keep it nice and dry and cool. And you've got a good supply of seed. The trickiest stuff, requires some isolation and hand pollinating. But certainly those three vegetable plants are a great way to start um, saving seeds themselves. 
Yeah, very good idea. And uh, I, I guess the most important thing is obviously you know, not to have an F1 hybrid uh, to you know, try and save the seed from just a regular heritage or an heirloom variety to start off with. Yeah, you might. You might. I mean, if you've never done it before and, and you want to try it, you, why not save some, some, an F1 hybrid? But you might be rather surprised at what you get the following year. Um, <laughs> but, but yes. <laughs> certainly in terms of, of the process, it's, it's a great one to try. Excellent. Well, thanks for that. And I was going to say, Christine, uh, on, on the actual storage, um, I mean, it's usually sort of airtight containers. Often, uh, you know, Tupperware <laughs> or other brands are available is usually the thing, isn't it? <laughs> so, I mean, in keeping them obviously dry and obviously individually labelled, uh, any, any any tips on, on, on that sort of side of things? Yeah, well, it, if you can imagine, we grow out about 100 varieties each year for seed here. So labelling is like really, really important part of what mm-hmm. we do here. And, and, and even if you're just growing one or two things for seed, you'd be really surprised, you know, the next year, you, you can't really remember what you're growing. So always have a pencil, piece of paper, envelope, something along those lines. Always mark what you've done and when you've, when you've saved the seed. Certainly from a storage point of view, yes, you're quite right. You know, keeping them nice and dry is really important. If you're just saving seed, maybe just, so that you can sow it again the next year or just save it for a year or two. Something breathable, like a paper envelope, is probably going to be good enough. If you want to store it for a longer term, then yes, something that's that's air-sealed, you know, a jar with a sealed lid or, or a container with a sealed lid. The most important thing is keeping the moisture out or not trapping moisture in because that, that's an enemy for, for seed saving. So you would want to make sure your seed is sufficiently dry before you do that and drying your seed for a small seed on average and i'm talking anything up to a small cucumber size maybe a week um week or so and for a larger seed up to a broad bean size we're talking maybe two to three weeks somewhere out of direct sunlight sunlight somewhere relatively dry but not somewhere warm or hot like an airing cupboard or anything like that on um catherine uh, Katrina, I was going to say on the the oldest seed you've ever germinated at uh, the Heritage <laughs> Seed Library. I, I mean, I mean, I just wonder: have you got actual records, sort of going back to the nineteen seventies and beyond? Um, for uh, that's 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 very that's a, that's uh, really interesting actually because since I've been here, I think the harvest that the harvest we did in twenty twenty, we harvested a cabbage from seed that was twenty nine years old. So. Okay. That was actually named Green Wonder. I think that's a record, certainly in the mm. time at the seed library. In fact, the seed was older than some of the staff actually cultivating it, which was all <laughs> in using. Yeah. Um, but as, you know, each vegetable type will, will have a different optimum shelf life, and, and brassicas have got a really long shelf life. So it would be quite unusual to have anything over 30 year, years old that's mm. been sitting in our cold store that we could successfully germinate. But we, fortunately, with this particular example, we had lots and lots of seeds. So even if only a small percentage was viable, you know, we were able to, to grow up enough mm. plants from, from that seed stock. So I think 29 years is probably yes, a that's pretty, that's a pretty competent we, we uh, number, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, certainly, yes. Uh, we, do, we do free some of our seed, and we, we have um, a backup collection at Warwick University, at uh, Wellsbourne. Um, where where Lawrence Hills originally set out with the, the, the vegetable gene bank, and they are our black box, our, our backup collection. Should anything happen to to the collection here on site, 
Um, so freezing the seed, if it's sufficiently dry, that can extend that even further. So, you know, easily beyond 30 years. But, uh, you know, we, we generally grow out within the, the lifespan of the seed. Anywhere on average around five years before we, we next grow one of the heritage vegetables in our collection. Well, my next question really is, is something we, we were chatting, Peter, weren't we, a, a couple of episodes back about gene editing. Mm. Uh, it, was a, it was a news story and it was suggesting that, that now that we're out of the EU and things, our British growers can start doing a bit of genetic engineering on, on varieties of crops. What do you think mm. the impact that could have that on, 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 um, on the Seed Heritage Library if, if that sort of starts to, to filter through where... More, more manipulation of, of crops are going to come into the into the process, or do you think it would be just a, just another crop which will have obviously different traits and different qualities to uh, to, to sort of savour and capture for for posterity in the future? Sure. Well, I mean, this is a huge area, and I'm, I'm not a geneticist, but and if, if you put aside the issues of regulation and how it's regulated and whether mm-hmm. we will change that in the UK post post uh, EU. I mean, I think in reality, I suppose, the access to this biotechnology is dominated currently by, you know, just a few multinational companies with a, a large agricultural focus. So I suppose I'd kind of turn the question on its head somewhat and argue that what we're doing at the Heritage Seed Library has, you know, along with other similar organisations around the world, is, is that we have access to a huge amount of genetic resource mm-hmm. and cultivated biodiversity that could end up in our, our food systems and address some of the issues that that um, are, are being presented as, as, as being solved only um, by this technology approach, this uh, biotechnology approach. Um, and importantly, open pollinated crops that we have breeding and selected um, using conventional methods over decades, if not centuries, are going to continue to be adaptable and potentially address some of the challenges of climate change, etc. You know, Importantly, and this is one of the things that we say about the varieties that we're custodians of in in the heritage collection, is that that seed then stays in the hands of the growers, um, that anyone with a little bit of care can save their own seed. They don't need to keep buying more if they don't need to, if they don't want to. And I think that's a really important approach to to this in terms of the notion of seed sovereignty seed miles of food food security really and, and you know we know how much we've lost over over the last hundred years or so you know hundreds if not thousands of genetically diverse varieties um of vegetable cultivars alone you know and those potential important genetic resources are the ones that we're working hard at and i can't see that that changing at all you know finding and, and sharing those varieties that we know of interest to our members and to other growers and potential breeders in the future and that's something that we're going to continue to do with conventional breeding and you know it's about what what are we what are we trying to achieve and and who owns the seed at the end of the day and and i think the open pollinated heritage varieties that we've got answer some of those questions already yes i i see the argument as well in a way um the you know the the, uh, the these conglomerates who are editing existing varieties are putting trying to put or remove the, the 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 problem qualities in effect you've got the you've got the genetic material to actually add to those varieties naturally to make them drought resistant or whatever so yeah it's it's sort of working from two different sort of points of of uh, source really isn't it so yeah i think it's a uh, 
yeah. it's going to continue and rumble on, I'm sure, in the in the years to come, because obviously we're becoming more and more conscious of that. Of course, and we'll be watching this space to see, see what the landscape looks like. Mm, indeed. So, Katrina, we usually ask our podcast guests to choose a desert island plant. And in view of the massive, you know, 800 varieties you're growing at Garden Organic and the Heritage Library, which one particularly would you like to grow on your uh, your magical, mystical island? Oh, well, there, there are just so many to choose from. This is a really, really difficult question. And I've got a particular <laughs> soft spot. Some of the really beautiful French themes that we've got in our collection and their lovely sea coats and everything else. But actually, I'm going to go for something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, given that I would expect there to be you know, plenty of warmth and sunshine on this, on this desert island. Yep. So perhaps I'm going to go for... Uh, a really magnificent doody variety. So a, do- a doody is a kind of gourd plant. And we've got a few heirloom varieties in our collection, ones that have been adapted to actually to UK growing conditions, have been grown in the UK in allotments all around all around the country. Um, so perhaps I'd go for one of those. And I, I think I'm going to go for a variety called Mo Syed. And uh, Mo was actually um, uh, uh, someone who had an allotment back up in Leicester. And uh, the variety is named after him. It's um, originally, the original seeds would have been from India and Mo was growing a variety that's familiar to him and adapted his own heirloom that was working well in the UK. Um, it produces massive fruit about the size of a small child when it gets going. Um, I think it could come in quite useful. So if I ever mastered the technique of properly drying out a gourd, I, I could have containers, um, things to carry stuff around. Or maybe if I selected it and grew it really, really big, maybe I could even hollow it out and paddle off the island. Or <laughs> oh, okay. I love the ingenuity there. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good answer. That's fantastic. Great, great one. Yeah. And finally, we like to ask our guests um, for a, a joke or a funny story related to what you're up to. Have you, have you got anything you'd like to share with us? Uh, well, I'll spare you the maggot jokes and things that we've experienced here. It's perhaps not to everybody's taste as, as, uh, as, as your podcast, but but, uh, but I mentioned that we've got some really lovely, really pretty French beans in the collection, you know, ranging from various markings of figures and really beautiful colours and, and shiny, multicoloured sea coats. And, and sometimes when I've been out speaking to gardening groups or events, um, I'll bring with me some really big sweetie jars, you know, yep. these old-fashioned sweetie jars, yeah. uh, and we'll fill them with dried seeds, and they're really attractive. And I always invite people to come up afterwards and help themselves, take a nice sample away and, and enjoy growing them themselves. And they're quite quite striking to, to look at and really, really lovely varieties we can make available. So on, one, on this one occasion, um, I'd been doing some talking and, and somebody, a, a couple turned up right at the end, um, arrived right at the end of it. And um, one of them politely came up and asked if they could come and take some of the seed away. And of course, I was very happy for them to help themselves and they, they selected some really particularly nice coloured, bicolour French uh, bean seed, a really nice bean seed, really shiny, pretty thing. Anyway, this gentleman came back a few minutes later and he really wasn't looking very pleased. And he said, uh, I, I've just given these to my wife and she says they taste terrible. <laughs> and I, I, I had to explain that they were actually weren't sweet at all. Uh, oh, it's really not a very great idea to crunch your way through some dry beans. <laughs> well, that's all the usual 
So I think I think he saw the funny side, but he was absolutely baffled <laughs> and clearly not not entirely impressed with my beautiful collection of shamrubies. Yeah, he won't do that again, will he? <laughs> In a hurry. <laughs> oh, that's great. No one should. I must hasten to add, they really should pop twice, beam seeds in the mouth. But uh, no. I think he learned his lesson, and so did he. <laughs> that's it. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. And I mean, I'd just like to say a big, big thank you from us as a garden centre and a, mm. a, someone who grows, grows plants. It's fantastic work that you're doing up at the Doubleday Research Centre. And it's so good to hear from people who are trying to sort of diversify and keep the old heritage varieties of vegetables growing because yeah. it is a massive sort of resource mm. and it's so good to keep it going and not just hide it all away and no. forget about them. Indeed. Well, thank you for inviting me to talk about it. And I completely agree, you know, our, our mantra is really the best way to conserve these varieties is to get people growing them again. And it's really great when we can share the stories and uh, the great, great varieties, great flavours, and, and interesting plants with, with people. Uh, and it, it makes what we do worthwhile. So thank you very much. Thank you, Katrina. And uh, how do our Digit listeners find out more about the, the Seed, uh, the Heritage Seed Library? Absolutely. Well, you can pop onto the Garden Organic website. So uh, www.gardenorganic.org.uk. And uh, we do lots of. Uh, projects related to communities and organic growing and, and research and campaigning but you'll find there's a section there on what we do and if you follow the links to the heritage seed library there'll be a little bit of information about what we do on site here how you can get involved how you can join we will very welcome new members uh, and and a bit of information about getting involved potentially as seed guardians if, if, uh, if a member wanted to do that as well so please take a look it's also worth saying that all of the um, seed saving advice is available for free on the website as well. So if you haven't saved seed before or if you fancy taking on a trickier crop, then uh, there are lots of resources there that you can access for free to help you get started. That's brilliant, Katrina. That's lovely. And, and uh, thank you again. And just, just finally, about five or six years ago, we were seed guardians at the garden centre here. We did do our a little bit one summer. And if I remember rightly, we, we did have a, an amazing crop of beans, mm. uh, some amazing coloured beans. So maybe some of those beans you've been chatting about today is, is what we were growing there. So it was a really good uh, exercise. And it was good for our staff as well to get involved in, in growing plants they probably never grow before and maybe never grow again. You know, it's that little snapshot of... Of, of trying something and, and experiencing a lot of these heirloom varieties. So thank you for your great work and, and thanks for joining us on no, Digit today. Thank you. Not at all. Thank you too. Thank you. Today's show was brought to you by Buckingham Garden Centre and Nurseries. The show was hosted by Chris Day and Peter Brown. The show was produced by Peter Brown. And our thanks to Chilton Music Therapy for providing the music. Thanks for listening. At Chilton Music Therapy... We want everyone to know the difference that music can make in their lives. From parents and their premature babies in hospital to grandparents with dementia. We provide music therapy and community music services to people of all ages and needs across England. We work both digitally and in person in people's homes, care homes, schools, hospitals and hospices. Find out more at chilternmusictherapy.co.uk.